You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. And it would be about 12 of their peers, and they would have dinner and discuss politics and world affairs and literature and what have you. Well, the legend goes like this, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle sent a handwritten note to each of his 12 dinner guests, his regular group of men that he hung out with. He sent a handwritten note to each of the 12, and it simply said this, flee, all is discovered, and eight of them left Britain. Like, I, I don't know what, what, what was going on, but... Apparently, Edgar Allan Poe did the same exact thing here in the United States. Now, I don't know that that exactly happened, but it's really pretty revelatory that that legend has persisted and that eight of these 12 guys on either side of the pond both had that reaction of, oh, no, and I'm found out, I'm discovered, it's out there, which means they were dealing with some level of guilt, some level perhaps even of shame. And really, that's going to be our conversation this morning. This issue of guilt is sort of part and parcel to the human condition. It is the stuff of so much great literature. In fact, one of Sherlock Holmes' mysteries, Gloria Coffers, has to do with someone who could not deal with the amount of shame they had, and they ultimately end up cracking at the end of the episode. Same thing with Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, where by the end of that story, the guilty party ends up shouting their confession because they cannot deal with guilt. This morning, we're going to talk about guilt and the source of guilt, which also leads to our big idea. And it's really quite simple this morning. It goes like this. Sin is a really big deal. Now, I'm betting that for most of us, that's not a newsflash. That's something we already sort of know, and yet we have the tendency, we have the capacity, we have the proclivity to sort of stifle and suppress. And we wink and we nod and we nudge at sin, but our text this morning is going to tell us that sin is a really big deal. So if you would please, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. As you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed. All this semester, we have been studying through the life of David, this shepherd, warrior, poet, and king, This one who is supposed to rightly represent God to the nation of Israel. But all of these narratives about David, what they're really doing is preparing us for the promised Messiah. The one who is the hope of Israel. The the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the warrior, the suffering servant, all of that. The New Testament arrives and says, Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah. And all of these Old Testament narratives are pointing us toward the ultimate coming of Christ. They are not morals. They are not fables in which we insert ourselves into the story. That's a Western discipline. That's not the way the Bible was written. The Bible is preparing us for something that will occur, the coming of Christ. In fact, we know that that is the interpretive key for much of the Old Testament because Jesus himself, after his resurrection, is walking on a dusty path on the way to Emmaus, and he encounters two very discouraged, disgruntled disciples who are saying, oh, it's all over, our hopes and dreams are dashed. And Jesus walks up behind them, they don't recognize him, he says, hey, what are you guys so upset about? And they say, are you the only dude in Israel who doesn't know what's happened? We thought that this man was the Christ, that he was the promised Messiah, but he's dead. And Jesus says, and I quote, (laughs) 
you guys don't understand. You've been reading the Old Testament wrong. You think it's about you. It's not about you. It's about me. And in Luke 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures concerning himself. See, fellas, it's about me. Now, that is the greatest seminary that has ever been, where Jesus just takes these two dudes and goes, Boys, pull up a stool, gather around. Here's the deal. And he tells them, and so we've studied through the life of David this spring semester thus far, and we've heard a lot that David is a shepherd boy who is ruddy and handsome. They do exist in the wild, red-headed people that are good-looking. And he's anointed king over Israel by Samuel. And he goes and he sees Goliath, and he kills Goliath because Goliath is a blasphemer, speaking curses against the God of Israel. And David then gains notoriety in Israel and even in Philistia, and he has to flee cray-cray King Saul, and he runs all over Israel and Philistia trying to get away from crazy King Saul. Finally, King Saul is killed by the Philistines. His son Jonathan is killed by the Philistines, and David, at long last, ascends the throne. He's sitting on his rooftop one day with the prophet Nathan. He says, Nate, I believe I'll build God a house. And God says, nope, I will build you a dynasty. David says, wow, well, I want to show kindness to somebody. And so he finds a cripple named Mephibosheth from the house of Saul, and he blesses him undeservedly. David has conquered all of the borderlands that are promised in Deuteronomy. David has subdued those lands. And now he finds himself in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's pick up there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. It goes like this. In the spring of the year... The time when kings go out to battle. David sent. Now, I'm going to read for you all of chapter 11. We're going to walk through this, but here is an interpretive key. Here's a little, uh, here's a freebie. As we read through chapter 11, I want you to make note of every time you see the word sent, because that's one of the clues of what this chapter is really all about. Every time you see the word sent, I want you to make a note, either in pencil or pen, if you're that bold, or whatever. I want you to notice the word sent. Verse 1 again, the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. What is going on? There is one more people group, one more tribe, if you will, that has still stayed unsubdued. It's the Ammonites. And David has said, we will not attack the Ammonites. We will not take them because there is a provision and a promise over them by God. The Ammonites are the product of Lot and one of his daughters, ew, ew, ew. And so David says, no, they're sort of kin, albeit creepy. They're kin. We're not going to attack them. But the king of the Ammonites dies. And David says, hey, I've been kind to Mephibosheth. I'm going to be kind to the Ammonites. I'm going to go and comfort the king's son because of the death of his father. And he shows up with his messengers. David doesn't actually go. He sends messengers and says, hey, new king of the Ammonites, we're so sorry that your dad died. And the new king of the Ammonites thinks, oh, he's mocking me. He's scorning me. And so he takes the messengers of David and shaves half their beards and cuts their pants off. That's weird. <laughs> like, I've had bad elder meetings. That's never happened. <laughs> cuts half their beards off and, like, pantses them to shame them and sends them home. Now go back and tell David, we won't have that. And David says, well, that's it. The gloves are off. Now I got to kill you. And so he wages war against the Ammonites. He sends Joab, his most trusted, fiercest general, and all the armies of Israel, and they go out to fight the Ammonites. But David stays home. And David has, oh, that most 
deadly ingredient. He has idle time. Let's pick up 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's a familiar story, but I want us all to hear this anew as if for the first time. And I want us to sort of feel the descent as David downwardly spirals. And by the way, I know this feeling. Let me just say also, I'm preaching about sin this morning. Can I just tell you, the worst week ever in a preacher's history is when he has to preach about sin because all week long, I'm the poster child without fail. It is the most convicting thing ever to study about sin and realize I am a wretch and I'll walk around the house literally groaning aloud. just like, oh, yeah. And she says, you know, we can hear you, right? I don't care. It's terrible. I go, hey, we have company. Could you please stop, stop, stop doing that? It's hard to talk about sin. It is incredibly convicting. It's not a super popular topic. We don't put it on church billboards. It's not a growth engine. And yet, so much of our Bible is telling us about the enormity of sin, the prevalence of sin, the damage of sin, because sin is a really big deal. So I just want you to hear this story. I'm betting most of us, many of us, this is a familiar text, but I want you to just allow the text to grip you by the abdomen like it's intended, all right? So here we go, verse 2. It just so happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, because apparently he's a college boy. No, I don't know what's going on there. It's late in the afternoon, and David's still asleep on his couch. Like, that's not, that's, that's not okay. He arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Oh, and by the way, the woman was, wow, very beautiful. This lady was easy on the eyes. And David sent. Here we go again. David has now become a sending guy. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is, that, is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. By the way, I've been there. You can stand right where the roof of David's house would have been, and her roof was right there. It's not like he didn't know. He's being a little bit uh, cloak and daggerish. He knows exactly who she is. He knows exactly whose she is. It's not a big town, and she lives right there. So David sent And now we're going to watch this sort of staccato burst of just very short little phrases of David just does and does and does until it's done. Here we go. Verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her. It's not a whole lot of romance here. He took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. That's it. Not a whole lot of narrative about this deal. But it happens. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. It's the only words she's going to speak in the whole tragic narrative. I am pregnant. So David sent. It's amazing, really. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Uriah, by the way, light of God. Great name. Verse 7. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Did you see the glib spackle over the relational termites? David, who has taken his wife. Hey, how's it going out there? Are there, are there flowers? Have you, have you had any of the sorbet? I'm hearing it's delightful this time of year. Just making chit-chat with the guy whom he has completely, completely betrayed. Verse 8, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet 
because you're a soldier and you got soldier foot and your whole countenance is stanky. So you, you need a bath. Go down and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. <laughs> this was not like a stocking stuffer. This, this, this is, this is um, David not being so sly and yet trying to be so sly to cover his tracks. Hey, he's a soldier. He's a warrior. We know from other texts that Uriah was also one of David's mighty men. One of his friends, they'd fought together. They had lived together in caves and, and, and hollows. They're known to one another. He had been a loyal, noble friend. And David says, hey, listen, listen. I know you've been out in the field. You've been fighting, getting gritty and sweaty and bloody and nasty. Go take a bath. Put on some oil. little Old Spice here, a little Old Spice there. And uh, by the way, I'm going to send some raisin cakes with you. Oh, yeah. When someone sends raisin cakes after you, they've got thoughts, all right? That's not a subtle deal. We know from another text, David sends raisin cakes. If your husband comes home with raisin cakes, Katie, bar the door, all right? That's not very subtle in that culture. David sends a gift after Uriah, sends him some raisin cakes. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, David uh, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, and I quote, Don't! Foiled. My first attempt to solve this little conundrum has failed. Ugh. It's not supposed to go that way. I had my tracks covered. It was going to work. I was going to get away with it. But he's foiled. David said to Uriah, verse 10, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. It's really astonishing. Uriah is a Hittite, the light of God, who's a Gentile, who is behaving like the king of Israel should, who is actually rightly representing God to this people with nobility and dignity, while the king of Israel is now becoming like that which he despised most. He's become Saul 2.0. Verse 12, Then David said to Uriah, uh, round two, let's try this again, Remain today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. I will send, send, send. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that David made Uriah drunk and in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go to his house. To which David said in the old King James, Goeth! Foiled again. Second time loser. So verse 14, David thinks third time's a charm. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it. Now this is cold. By the hand of Uriah. Why can he send it with Uriah? Because he knows that Uriah is noble. He will not break loyalty and open this letter. He will dutifully carry it in obedience to his king. Verse 15, in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. I reiterate, this was a friend to David, a colleague, someone that he had done battle with, lived in caves with, and it's so cold and calculating that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men of the Ammonites. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Verse 18, then Joab sent. 
Now he's complicit. He knows what's going on. He knows that David has set Uriah up. Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king gets mad, because Joab knows this King David, he's become a temper tantrum hothead. If he gets mad and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? And then Joab says, David's going to quote judges, because when David gets a little feisty, he suddenly gets biblical. You know people like this? Your wife might be staring at you, or vice versa. Suddenly David's going to get biblical, and Joab knows this. He says, when, when David gets mad and quotes from the book of Judges, he's going to say, hey, did Ahimelech not get killed by the hefty housewife who heaved a millstone over the wall? What were you doing so close to the wall? This is funny. This is very funny. One of the only stories that David knows from the books of, book of Judges is that there was apparently a hefty housewife with a low center of gravity so that she could pick up this millstone. This woman was awesome, and she gets it up over the wall, and she launches this puppy, and it falls down, and it kills the evil king Ahimelech. That woman is not to be trifled with. And so David's going, listen, this is a lesson we should have learned. You don't fight too close to the wall. What were you thinking? Joab knows that David's going to react this way. That's amazing. And apparently, David does exactly according to his programming. Then verse 22 or into verse 21, then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 22, so the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead. Oh, uh, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And you can just sort of imagine that the messenger at this point draws back and braces for impact because it's now sort of known and legendary that when David gets bad news, he separates head from shoulders. Two messengers now have come and brought David some news, and David goes, yeah, I'll, I'll be taking that head off your shoulders. So this guy's like, hey, your buddy Uriah, I know he was known to you. He was your friend. He was your mighty man. Yeah, he's dead. And then David does something really surprising. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, he's going to send him back, do not let this matter displease you. This is just how it goes, Joab. This is just uh, the way of the world. It's just fate. Joab has spoken in code, and now David is spoken in code. They're, they're being deceptive one to another now. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Joab, we've done it. We've covered it. No one knows. There's only four people that know about this. One of them's dead, Uriah. He didn't really know the whole story. You know about it, Joab. You're not going to say anything because I've got dirt on you. She's certainly not going to say anything. We've done it. Nobody knows. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. Can you imagine the grief and the guilt and the shame. Now, a lot of people have tried to make this text that she was complicit. She had no business being where she was when she was bathing. The text makes no comment thus. I really do take it that she is a victim in all of this. She's cleaning, cleaning from her impurity. Seems like she is a victim. Should, did she know the king lived next door? Oh, yeah. Did she know that he was probably still home? Yes. But the text makes no indictment against her. Her husband has been killed, and she is now pregnant from an illegitimate relationship with the king. And when, verse 27, when the morning was over, David sent, oh, this guy, he sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. 
But, oh, 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 remember this guy? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Shockingly, astonishingly, this is the first time God's been mentioned in the chapter. Chapters 8 and 9 and 10 are all about the goodness and the blessing and the grace and the sovereignty of God. We get to chapter 11, there's no mention of God until the very end. This is a frequent pattern in Old Testament scripture. We'll have a character introduced like Abraham. And Abraham will engage in a pattern of deceit and say, oh yeah, my wife? No, 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 she's not my wife, she's my sister. Which is a half-truth, which is an entire lie. And the entire chapter that that narrative is described, God's name is never mentioned. We meet Moses and all the things that Moses does with anger and deceit. And all that entire chapter of those narratives about Moses, the name of God is never mentioned. Here in 2 Samuel 11, it's tragic. After all the goodness, all the grace, all the glory, all the giving of God, chapter 11, he's not even mentioned. All we have is David sending, Joab sending, Bathsheba sending, Joab sending, David sending, everybody sending, until we get a little bit of Hebrew humor. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent. <laughs> now it's all. Like, y'all you, you, had, you had your fun? You're sending your messages back and forth? You think you got all this covered? You think, you've, you think you've won? You think you've covered your tracks? There's always a 2 Samuel 12, 1. You may not think it's coming. There's always a 2 Samuel 12, 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And then it's a familiar passage to many of us. Nathan the prophet now switches hats from buddy and colleague to ambassador of the sovereign of the cosmos. Remember, it was Nathan and David that had been hanging out on the roof, and David says, I'm going to build God a house. And Nate says, you the man, do it. And then God says, um, Nate, you didn't ask me. You're not doing that. I will build him a dynasty. Now Nathan has to take, which is often the way it goes in ministry, you got to take off the buddy hat, put on the ambassador of the sovereign hat, and say, thus says the Lord. And Nathan tells a story. It is once upon a time, there was a, a poor man, and he had one little ewe lamb. And he loved this lamb like it was a daughter. And he took care of this lamb, and he fed this lamb in his lap, and he named this lamb, and he cherished this lamb, and it was his whole world. But there was a rich man who had many flocks, tons and tons of sheep. And one day, a traveler came to the rich man. And the rich man thought to himself, I will take the poor man's sheep, and I will prepare it for my guest. And he took that poor man's sheep, killed it, prepared it, and served it, and it was eaten by the traveler. Now, the rabbis have written for 3,000 years on this. Interesting, we know who the poor man is. It's Uriah. The rich man, of course, it's David. Who's the traveler? I think the rabbis are right on this. The traveler is the presence and the coming of sin. It always knocks. Never gets tired of visiting. I think they're onto something there. The poor man loses his prized possession. The rich man takes it, even though he had many. Clearly, the poor man is Uriah. The rich man is David. David has many flocks, if you will. David had many wives and concubines by this point. He was not supposed to have had. Deuteronomy 17 says the king must not do this, but David does. Suddenly, David gets biblical again. David says, with righteous indignation, as surely as the Lord lives... This man shall die. He must repay 
fourfold. What's going on there? This is not an accident. In the book of Exodus, it says, if you steal someone's ox, you repay fivefold. But if you steal someone's lamb, you repay fourfold. Suddenly, David gets biblical and begins to use the law of God to his favor. And then in a very familiar, famous passage, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Nathan said to David, you the man! No, 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 not like that. You are the man. You are the one. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. I am a giving God. Dave, what is this you have done? You have grasped more. And then in verse 9, why have you despised, not God, why have you despised the word of the Lord? Why have you baza? This word baza, it's not an easy translation. It's not uh, hated. It is treated with contempt. Why have you treated the word of the Lord with contempt? It's, it's to treat it as if it's insignificant, as if it's unimportant, as if it's a no thing. This is what baza is. David, why have you done this? Deuteronomy, when the king of Israel takes his throne, he is to take a pen and with his own hand write letter for letter the entire law of God so that he knows. David, why have you treated as a no thing the word of God? But I also think what's in view here is the Davidic covenant we studied a couple weeks ago, 2 Samuel chapter 7. David, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to prepare for you. You are always going to have an heir to reign on the throne. I'm giving you legacy and legitimacy and long-lastingness. Why have you treated that as if it's a no thing, as if it doesn't matter? And because you have despised my word, you have done this evil thing, which I think is really astonishing that later David will write Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in our Bible. It has 176 verses. And right in the middle of Psalm 119, we have Psalm 119, 11, which says, Your word I have stored in my heart that I might not sin against you. I always kind of want to put a little uh, asterisk on Psalm 119, 11. I have stored your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I mean, after that whole Bathsheba thing. Because before, I clearly didn't, and I did, evil what was, I did what was evil in your sight. Every single verse of Psalm 119 is David after this incident, writing about the glories of the word of God, his precepts, his law, his rules, his tenets, all of those things, 176 times David's going to say, it's your word, it's your word. And when we treat it as a no thing, with contempt, as it's unimportant and insignificant, we can't help it, we inevitably descend into doing evil in the sight of God. But wait, there's more. 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. God has no ambiguity. Who is responsible? Now, do you think David has the moxie to go, well, actually, 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 it wasn't me. I wasn't there. You remember I was here having an affair with it. Oh, never mind, never mind, never mind. No, God absolutely knows who is responsible for the killing of Uriah. You've killed Uriah the Hittite because God never forgets a name, by the way. I love that he calls him by name. God loved 
Uriah, and it grieved him for him to die in that way. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You did this, David. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. You ever been there? We're going to have a show of hands and you're going to get to, no, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. You ever bazaar? The Lord God just treated him as if he's a no thing, as if he's not there. You just treat him as if he's unimportant, insignificant, until you need something. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, philosopher, was right. He said, when we sin, it's not so much that we hate God, it's that we choose to forget him. I think he gets that from the Psalms. You have despised me. Verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. J. Vernon McGee famously said, what is secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. God says, I will make this thing known. You took Bathsheba. She was the prize lamb, not just of Uriah. But what we'll find out is that Bathsheba's father was a man named Eliam, and he was the man. He was one of David's mighty men. Eliam's father was this man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel, great name. He was called a counselor of God. Not that he gave God advice. He spoke the counsel of God. God says, I will never take the sword from your house. One day, David's son Absalom is going to lead a revolt, a coup against David. And Bathsheba's grandfather, Ahithophel, is one of the very first to follow after Absalom. He never forgave David for what he did to his prized granddaughter. Ahithophel, the counselor of God, goes after Absalom and follows him instead of David. David's other son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar, and David does nothing about it because he has self-disqualified himself. Ugh, I have this dysfunction in my life now. And the rest of 2 Samuel deals with David's dysfunction in his household. But the astonishing scandal, the gospel, right here in chapter 12, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I can explain. I can fix this. Give me some time. I can fix this. No, that's what I say. It's not what David said. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David recognizes that he has offended a person, not a rule book, not a code of conduct. A person. I have sinned. Well, you go, wait a minute. I'm pretty sure he sinned against Uriah too. Ultimately, he sinned against God. And Nathan said to David, well, that's too darn bad. You're going to die. No, that's a bad translation. It doesn't say that at all. Verse 13, it's astonishing. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Just like that. Just like that. David acknowledges and God removes it. Just like that. Many people revile this verse. They say, no, it can't be that easy. It can't be that easy. You have to have some sort of payback. You have to have some sort of debt repayment plan. No, just like that, Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Now you know the rest of the story perhaps. David 
This is about uh, nine and a half, ten months after the initial deed with Bathsheba. And the Lord strikes the child as ill. And for seven days, David fasts and he prays before the Lord. And the child gets sicker and sicker. And David fasts and he prays. And on the seventh day, not the eighth day, on the seventh day, the child dies. Why is that important? Because in ancient Israel, the child was circumcised on the eighth day and given a name, given a personhood. But this child never makes it to personhood. And David prays and he fasts and his servants are very concerned for him. They think, this guy's going to do himself some harm. What are we going to do? And finally the child dies on the seventh day. And David hears the servants all whispering and he says, did he die? And they brace for impact and they grimace and they say, yes, the child is dead. David pops up. He washes. He bathes. They set food before him. He eats. He goes to the house of the Lord and he worships. And the servants are awestruck. What is this you have done? What are you doing? How can you worship? How can you eat? How can you pray? How can you bathe when the child is now dead? You were an absolute mess while he lived. And David does great theology. He says, there is nothing more I can do. He has died. Which is, by the way, how we have to treat death. Some of you know death. And the temptation is to linger and stew in the grief. And we cannot. We deal with death. And we have to move on. David says, I cannot, I cannot bring him back. I have done all that I can, but I will go to him one day. And the child dies. Astonishingly, David goes in to comfort Bathsheba. And I expect the text to say, but that was it. There's no way God was going to honor this. He was barren the rest of his life. But the text says, huh, she conceived. Oh, what grace. She conceives, and she gives birth to a son, and they named him Shalom, Shlomon, Solomon, the peace of God. And then, as a little baby shower gift, God shows up at the end of chapter 12 and says, oh, one more thing, uh, I'm going to call him Jedidiah, beloved of God. If that grace doesn't get all up inside you, you're not listening. See, sin is a really big deal, and yet, there is hope. So then, why is this text here? How does this prepare us for our daily living today? Let me just give you very quickly, I hope, four implications of why I think this text matters. Well, actually, let me do something else real fast. David, um, David writes Psalm 51, Psalm 51, immediately after this incident. It's a very familiar psalm to many of us. David writes Psalm 51, and at the end of Psalm 51, he writes this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because David has not been experiencing joy for over a year. You know why? Because he'll tell us other places. Joy and guilt cannot coexist. Joy and guilt do not share the same space. They cannot. They are diametrically opposed. And so David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. David says, give me joy. Remove my guilt, please. It is a crushing boulder, and I will use my error, my transparency to teach others. That's Psalm 51. And David makes good on that commitment because he writes Psalm 32 about a year later. Psalm 51 is right after the incident with the baby dying. Uh, much later, he'll write Psalm 32, and this is what he says in Psalm 32. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 5 here. 
It says in Psalm 32, a maskil of David. We don't know exactly what a maskil is. It's a, it's a wisdom word, a teaching. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit, essentially, who is guiltless. For when I kept silent, when I would not acknowledge my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I know this feeling. I make this sound. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. We don't know exactly what selah means. It's like a rest or an interlude in the verse, which we need to prepare us for verse 5. We're going to leave verse 5 up here for just a bit. David says, I acknowledged. The New Testament says, I confessed. I homologeo. I speak the same words as God. I agree with him. I agree. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Very quickly here, we have the three Hebrew words for sin in this text. In this one verse, Psalm 32.5, massively central passage for us to understand the enormity of sin. Sin is a really big deal. We have three different words. The first word is sin, chatah. Sin is missing the mark. It is falling short. It's an archer's term. Romans says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There's the target. It's a mile away. I draw back using all my expertise, all my experience, all my strength, all my cleverness, and I shoot, and I'm a mile short. Target's a mile away, and I'm still a mile short. That's how far I fall short. I can't ever come close. This word, chatah, it is our relation to the perfect law of God. This is what righteousness looks like. Here's me. This is my sin, he says in Psalm 32.5. This is the righteousness of God. This is what his character is like. Here's me. I fall way, way short. But then we have another word, iniquity. The word is hawan. It is our inner corruption, our twistedness, our jacked upness. Something inside us has gone terribly wrong. Galatians says that my spirit desires that which is against my flesh. My flesh desires that which is against my spirit. I am in conflict. My flesh desires to do me harm. It's my inner messiness. Am I a sinner because I sin? No. I sin because I am a sinner. Something is wrong. This is my relationship to myself. If sin is my relationship to God's perfect law of righteousness, this iniquity is my relationship to myself. It's broken. I am my worst enemy. I am the evildoer. Then there's the third word, transgression. The word is peshah. This is flat, premeditated rebellion against God. I know that's the deal. I'm going to do that. If sin is my relationship to his law of righteousness, iniquity is my relationship against myself, transgression is my rebellion and my relationship to God. I am opposed. See, sin is a multifaceted, really big deal. But there is hope. Let me give now, finally, four quick implications of how I think this impacts us. Number one is very quick. It goes like this. Beware prosperity. Beware prosperity. We can't help it. We are a species that does not like pain and really does like pleasure. We don't like pain. It hurts. We like pleasure. It feels good. And if you meet someone who has it backwards, that person is bizarre. Leave them alone. That's not normative. 
We like pleasure. We don't like pain. And so we spend a lot of time, energy, and resources trying to produce and create spaces in which our prosperity and our happiness and our pleasure can thrive. The problem is that creates breeding grounds, pun intended, for sin to flourish. I can't tell you how many times in the midst of euphoria my mind has wondered. And when I say I can't tell you, I literally mean I can't tell you because I'm bad at higher math. How many times in the midst of blessing and bounty and prosperity, I, I, I start looking around and obsessing on the delight of the gift rather than the giver. And those mountaintop experiences almost always immediately lead to severe temptation. Beware prosperity. This text is a screaming siren warning us, preparing us to decide in advance. How will you do? How will you decide when seasons of bounty come? I confess, in seasons of suffering and, and trial, I am close to my God. I'm calling his name. I need, I need, I need. I am dependent. But when bounty and prosperity and blessing comes, <laughs> I'll call you when I need you. Right now, it's time to party. Beware prosperity. Secondly, forgiveness does not mean the removal of consequence. Forgiveness does not mean the removal of consequence. Yes, forgiveness is the paying of a debt by another. And that debt is eternal separation from God. Sin forgiven at the cross of Christ does not remove consequence. If you kill somebody, you're going to do hard time if you're found guilty. Just because Jesus died on the cross doesn't mean he's going to go to jail for you. doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't wear orange jumpsuits. You will. I met a guy recently said, listen, Jesus paid it all. I'm not going to pay my mortgage anymore. And I was like, that's funny. He's like, no, I'm like for realsies. I was like, you're going to be in debtor's prison if we still had that. You, you, that's not what that means. Forgiveness of sin does not mean the removal of consequence. Hebrews says the Lord God chastens those whom he loves. He disciplines us. Why? Because he loves us because we're worth that. So do not hide behind the cross as if it removes all consequences. We see David and his family, and for the rest of 2 Samuel, dealing with all of that dysfunction. Does God rescind and remove his promise to be merciful? No. No, he always has in mind to send the ultimate King David, the Messiah. But there's also going to be consequences there. Number three, and this is a big one. So if you've sort of drifted off, come back here for just a second. Number three here, the human problem requires a divine solution. The human problem requires a divine solution. I think we can all pretty much agree, regardless of what news channel you watch, something's gone wrong in our world. There's always somebody perpetrating some horrible act of violence or hatred or abuse or abandonment against somebody else. And you, if you're anything like me, perhaps you're tempted to say secretly and silently or out loud in front of your family, oh, People are the worst, and they are. People are the worst. Something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. Early uh, psychologist Frederick Pearls, he said it this way. He said he could cure all psychopathology in one hour if he could get his clients not to feel guilty. Like that's the issue in our world. Guilt is the thing that is driving so many people. Despite all of our attempts and society's attempts and culture's attempts to cover it, we are wired to feel the effects of sin. That's guilt. He has created us with a conscience, believer, non-believer. It's this inner barometer that knows the difference between right and wrong. And so we do. We feel and we experience guilt. And anyone who has a 
conscience that has been seared, that they do not feel the difference between right and wrong. Literally, that is the definition of a sociopath. They are a danger to themselves and to society. Be very careful with that individual. It is a rare person, but they do exist. No, but sin produces in us guilt, and guilt is actually a glorious thing. It reminds us of the outside the character of Christness that I am. Guilt makes me acutely aware of my brokenness. As John Piper said, guilt is to the soul as pain is to the body. Something hurts, that must mean there's a problem. That's right, when I have guilt, that means there is sin in my life. And all of my attempts to cover my own guilt is just like Adam and Eve trying to put on fig leaves. God said, you look ridiculous. I can see right through that. Ugh. No, 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 no. You can't cover your own guilt. Although all of society's normative expressions and attempts are to either cover or eliminate the existence of guilt, but it will never work. Tim Keller put it this way, and he's right. He says, so much of our anger is really guilt. So much of our shame is really guilt. So much of your drive is really guilt. So much of your shyness is really guilt. Let me just say real fast, I talk to a lot of guys who will say, man, I just have a hard, hard time having a conversation with a woman. Like, I can't, I can't make eye contact. It just, there's just this electrostatic barrier, and I, I just can't do it. I say, yeah, you're struggling with sexual sin. What? No, I'm not. How could you say that? No, because you, you have guilt in your life, and you can't, you can't make eye contact. Oh, my gosh, how did you know? Well, because you're the seventh one this afternoon. So much of their awkwardness is because of guilt. It's a real issue. So much of our bitterness is guilt. Our cynicism is guilt. So much that drives us is really our way of trying to deal with guilt. And so Keller asks the question, how are you going to deal with it? I think Frederick Pearls was right. So much of what we view in the world around us is our world trying to deal with or eliminate the presence of guilt, but it will not work. Because sin is a really big deal. It's a human problem that requires a divine solution, which leads to our fourth point, and this is really good news. As big a deal as sin is, sin is no match for God's grace. That's really good news. It's a huge deal. The scriptures, Genesis 3, all the way through Revelation 21, are telling us what a big deal sin is, and yet it is no match for God's grace. All through 2 Samuel 11, David sent, Joab sent, Bathsheba sent, David sent, everybody sent, until you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, and the Lord sent. And you go, oh. But then in the New Testament, the Bible says in Galatians 4, 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Not to make a parking lot of the Milky Way, which is what I would do if I was God and you people were sinning in my galaxy. Oh, no, no, no. But not God. God sent his son. And rather than wipe us out for the sin that we have done, what we deserve, God wipes out his own son, do you see? God sent. Oh, you want to send, 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 send? God says, excuse me, may I have a word? I will do the sending now. And he sends his son. And his son, just like Uriah, obeys the king. And he goes valiantly to the front lines and dies for the sin of of another, Uriah, the light of God. Is that not Jesus? God sent, all right, but not to crush us in judgment, which is what we deserve, but to crush his own son. That's the gospel. 
Sin is a really big deal, but it is no match for God's grace. So maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a believer. You think this Jesus dude was a great guy, swell teacher, groovy rabbi, whatever, but he's not the Messiah. He's not God. Then let me just say, we believe that God's word is authoritative, inspired, and inerrant. And it says that guilt is the natural created byproduct of sin, and you will never experience joy so long as sin is present, so long as guilt is present. You can't. You will not experience joy. You will pursue it in every conceivable corner. You will never find it. But there is hope. There is one who has offered to take it all from you. So we invite you to believe. may not make sense. How can he be both God and man? I don't know. How does a rainbow work? I have no idea. I believe it. There is one who has offered to freely take away all of your guilt and to infuse and impute joy. I invite you to believe. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Or if you're here this morning and you've been a believer for a really long time, but you have gotten in the rhythm and the rut of bazaar, God's word, and God himself, I invite you to repent, to rethink your thinking, to not treat him as a no thing, to not treat him with contempt as if he is insignificant and unimportant. He is the God of the universe, and he has sent his son, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we stray, we do evil. So I invite all of us to repent. Sin is a really big deal, but it is no match for God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace, your unmerited favor upon us, that rather than give us what we deserve, you gave yourself and your son what we deserve. And so, Father, this morning I pray, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, would you move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, lead them out of death into life, that they would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, who takes away the sin and the guilt of the world, but who gives joy in abundance. And for the rest of us, Father, who have lost that joy, who have fallen in a rut of treating you as insignificant, would you captivate our hearts all over again with the glory of your gospel, this great news, this awesome announcement of what you have done in Christ that we would draw nearer and nearer to you, that we would be full of joy, and as such, we would be Uriahs, the light of God in the midst of darkness. May it be, God, exactly as I have prayed, or even better, because you're good and we can trust you. I pray this the only way I can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whoo, that's a lot of text. Let's all stand together, have a word of benediction, and we'll go do spring break. Thanks so much for being here. This is a quick one. It goes like this. May you be guiltless, and full of joy. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.